have wedding parties you go to, you know, the reception, which we felt, I think we, I don't know, maybe I was the only one that joked that it kind of felt like this is like the biggest party we're going to throw where we're providing all the food for everyone else and all the entertainment. Um, but you have wedding parties, you would have bachelor and bachelorette parties before uh, a wedding. Um, Katie's family always does this yearly 4th of July party uh, where we get together and there's certain games we play and, and whatnot and competitions, usually just sitting around having, you know, Eating, eating food and, uh, and stuff. Uh, we have birthday parties. I've kind of made it my thing where no one's going to throw a birthday party for me, so I throw my own every year. It's just as a reason to get people together and have fun. Um, and so there's all kinds of parties we go to in life. And I want us to kind of think about um, what is, uh, if somebody's at a party and you call them a party pooper, uh, I don't know where the pooper term came from, party pooper though, uh, what kind of characterizes someone we would call a party pooper. We're just going to throw uh, some, some of those words up here. What would a party pe- pooper be doing? What would be their attitude? What would they be saying? They're grumpy. Grumpy. You know, party pooper is grumpy. Don't participate. Don't participate. Yeah, they're kind of like there. Or maybe they just say, somehow show their uh, um, disapproval. And then they just don't, you know, come at all. So grumpy, don't participate. Ask questions. They might ask questions. Question stuff. They're all questioning, like, why are we doing that? Or why would I want to do that? Okay, so they're questioning. Maybe it's kind of like critical questioning. So questioning. What else does a party pooper do? What's their attitude? What do they say? What do they do? Might leave early. Like they don't leave early? Long. Okay. They're not the ones closing out the party, but they leave early. It's like, I made my appearance, so I'm done. Did my duty. Any other things a party pooper might do? Embarrass you. Might embarrass you. Okay, so you like wanted this to be a fun time, but you know this person's like, not going to be a great participant. Okay. Yeah, there's a... I like the show House. People always... I don't know if that's how you... I don't know how many R's are embarrassed, but that's where we're going with. But in the show House, people like... Sometimes there's people throwing a party, and they're like, do I really... He's like my friend, but do I really want him at it? Because I know he's going to kind of be a grouch and you know criticize it. So, yeah. I'll put embarrass you. Any other things? Okay, so they're like kind of very reserved, maybe. Is that what you're kind of thinking? They're like reserved. They're holding it back. They're not gonna, not very joyful. Yeah. <laughs> not joyful. So they're not they're not participating, not joining in. Yeah, I think. Well, I said with the questioning, I would add there that they're maybe like kind of critical, almost like judgmental. It's like they're kind of evaluating what everyone else is doing. So evaluating, judgmental. Wise. They're wise. They might be wise. <laughs> Depends on the party. But yeah, if you're reading this and you're like, 
that's kind of what I'm like at parties. Or if you're like, I don't know a party pooper. Maybe you just discovered you are the party pooper. I don't know. But as we continue this uh, four-week series on loving our neighbors, I wanted us to start thinking about this. When we, when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? He decided to give two. He said the first is to love God above all else. And the second is to love your neighbor as yourself. And for this series called Love Your Neighbor, we're... Uh, we're taking kind of the second commandment, literally, what does it look like to love our neighbors who live right next door to us? And while we're focusing on the second greatest commandment, it never gets separated from the first because we won't love our neighbors as ourselves unless we first love God above all else. And we'll never love God above all else unless we know that we're loved by God, unless we receive God's love. So we, when we receive God's love... We respond to him with love, and we're able to pour that love out to others. And so in each of these, we're not just doing a, you know, kind of a, you know, this is what we need to do, but we always need to start with God and the way he's loved us. And so I want, I'm going to throw out this agree or disagree. You can just do it in your head. Uh, God likes to party. Agree or disagree. God likes to party. I mean, if you were to ask people whether God likes to party, I'd imagine that it's the opposite of how we often think about God. And if I had to guess, you probably wouldn't describe God as a God who likes to party. And sadly, most people likely think of God as kind of a, a cosmic party pooper. But this is what describes God. He's like, you know, we're, we're embarrassed to talk about him because he makes the party not fun. He's not joyful. He's kind of just always evaluating, judgmental, and all these things. Like we might think God's kind of this cosmic party pooper. But there's solid evidence in the Bible uh, that God likes to party. And some of the most solid evidence is that Jesus liked to party. He liked to go to parties, to banquets, to feasts. He was invited to them. People wanted that, him at their, at their parties. And, but before uh, we love, uh, we will love our neighbors as ourselves, we must first love God. And what would make us love God? And let, is this your picture of God as someone that you'd want to love above all else? Is your picture of Jesus someone you'd love to be? Are you proud to call God your God? Or are you a bit embarrassed because you see him as this party pooper that kind of throws a wet blanket on all the fun? And is it hard to love God above all else because there's so many things that just feel so much more enjoyable than God? There's so many other things that are more fun, and so it's hard for you to love God above all else because he's just not that lovable or enjoyable. I want us to look at this story near the beginning of the Gospel according to Luke in John chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 11. And... This story takes place during the first week of Jesus' public ministry. He's gotten his first disciples to start following him. And then we're told in verses 1 and 2 that Jesus' mother and Jesus himself and Jesus' disciples were invited to this wedding, basically in the area that Jesus has grown up and where he's starting to do his ministry. And so they go to this wedding in the city called Cana. And their invitation to this wedding means they probably knew or were related to either the bride or the groom. And, and a Jewish wedding... Um, is really a big affair. Like we use, we do weddings, and it's like you know this has got to be like a fifty, you know, an hour ceremony is a bit too long, and then you got the reception, and then you know you're back by midnight or whatever. If you have little kids, you're gone by eight or something. Um, but a wet, Jewish wedding was a community event that lasted seven days. Can you imagine that? Just cut, taking off seven days of work and just going and hanging out at this wedding thing, this wedding feast and party. And the groom would be responsible for providing the food and wine. There'd be kind of like this master of the feast who would be responsible for the servants and getting the food and wine out and kind of timing that out. And in verse 3, we're, we're told this. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. 
I mean, this would be a very negative thing socially. I don't know. It doesn't quite say what uh, day it was that they ran out of wine. Was this day two? Was this day three? Was this day four? But this would be very disastrous socially. A failure, uh, you, you were responsible to provide adequate food and drink for the wedding guests, and a failure to do so would result in this you know, just social disaster, like you've kind of dishonored your family, like you, you've not shown yourself to be hospitable to the community. And in fact, uh, someone could actually take legal action against you if you failed to provide adequately for this wedding thing. So this is like a big deal. This isn't just like, okay, the wedding's gone, the wine's gone, let's just serve water, like, let's just send everyone home. This is like a really big deal. And in verse 4, Jesus responds to his mom. It says, he says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And this is kind of a polite uh, way to address her, but it also distances him um, from her a bit, kind of asking, like, you know, why, why are you involving me in this? Instead of jumping at him and being like, whatever you need, mother, I'll do. He's kind of like, what, why are you involving me in this? And he, the reason he gives for questioning her request he's, and involving him, he says, my hour has not yet come. Why are you involving me in this? My hour has not yet come. And so what? What hour is he talking about? What, is this, what does this mean? We'll come back to that later. But in verse 5, um, it's kind of like, what, what does um, his mom think that this means? Verse 5 just says, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. So she's kind of like, yeah, leave it in his hands. Or maybe she knew, he was like kind of saying this with a twinkle in his eye or something like, why are you involving me in this? And we'll come back around to that. And then in verse 6 we're told, you know, now there are the six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And so there's these stone jars. We're told that's there. It's part of the Jewish rites of, like, we're going to you know, get washed, you know, kind of clean uh, for eating and, and whatnot. And then verses 7 through 8, uh, Jesus gives these instructions. He said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And so then they fill them up to the brim. You know, it's kind of odd, though. It's like, Jesus, you know we don't, we don't need water, and we don't need to go through the purification rites. We need wine. Why are we filling this, these purification jars up with water? Like, we're kind of past that. But um, they do what he said. Um, and then he tells them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. And so they took it. And then verses 9 and 10, we kind of get his reaction. He, the master of the feast does a taste test. And it says, when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. And so it would make sense that right at the beginning, it's like, this is good wine. But as people you know, slowly became, became more under the influence of the wine, you don't need to serve as good of wine later on because it's like, ah, you know, I'll just kind of drink anything that, that's out there. And so he's like, but you've saved it. You know, whatever day this is, four or five or whatever, you've given us the best wine now. Instead of saving money by giving us poor wine now, you're giving us the best wine now. So he's kind of astounded. And then verse 11 says, This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. John, the disciple who wrote this, was one of Jesus' closest disciples. And if you flip to chapter 20, verses 30 to 31, he tells us why he wrote this book. He writes, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, 
that by believing you may have life in his name. And throughout the, this gospel account, he, John doesn't number every single sign like he does in this one. He says this is the first of his signs. Um, but many have counted up seven signs in total, seven things they would count as a sign. And there's many more, John says, that he could have told us about. And so then we must ask the question, there's many more, and so why have you given us this one, John? Why do you see this as a sign? And we know the purpose is that so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him we may have life in his, in his name. That's John's purpose, his agenda. But why this? Why, of all the things you could have written, why was this the first sign? And what, what's it telling us? So Jesus, uh, in the first chapter, uh, well, in this story right here, verse 11, um, it says that doing this, this sign manifested Jesus' glory to his disciples. And earlier in John 1, he said, Jesus has come revealing the glory of God. He's come with glory. He's revealing, revealing the glory of God. And so we would ask, how does this sign lead us to believing Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God? And how does it reveal his glory? And we might simply say, well, just the pure act of turning gallons of water into wine, that was enough. That's enough to show that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, and it was revealing his glory, how you know amazing he is. But there's, there's something deeper, because if we go back to what Jesus said to his mother, when she comes and says, they have no wine, he says to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And Jesus' hour in the Gospel according to John refers to his death, his resurrection, and his exaltation up to the right hand of God. And then more distant in the future is Jesus' return in glory. He dies in shame, he returns in glory. And that's what Jesus' hour is, the hour that he's going to die for our sins and be raised and then seated at God's right hand. And many times we find Jesus interpreting what people say with a deeper meaning than what they intend. Jesus' mom wants him to help this family, and especially the groom, uh, avoid social disaster by providing a solution to the shortage of wine. And in, a, in a way, Jesus' mother is asking him to perform the duties of the bridegroom, of the groom. She's saying, they've run out of wine, Jesus. You know, why are you involving me? Am I the master of the ceremony? Am I the bridegroom here? It's not up to me to provide this. And it's not that it would be wrong or inappropriate for Jesus to be involved in helping this, these, this couple avoid social disaster by providing wine. The point he's saying is, is not, my time has not yet come to throw a party as the bridegroom. And, I mean, we could maybe imagine a little twinkle in his eyes. He responds to his mother, and he basically says to her, my time has not yet come to be the bridegroom throwing the party. And marriage is one of the primary images in Scripture of God's relationship to his people. When God brings the people of Israel out of slavery by Moses, they come to Mount Sinai, God is say, says to them, I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people. And then the Ten Commandments are almost like their vows to one another. God says, I brought you out of slavery. This is who I'm making you into. And the, the, vow, the Ten Commandments are their vows back to God. This is how we will be uh, faithful to you in this relationship. God said, I've already done this. I've called you to be my people. This is, and I'm going to be your God. And this is how I can, you can live with me as your God and you as my people. So kind of imagine it's like this wedding ceremony at Mount Sinai. And God wants it to be an exclusive relationship. The first commandment, you have no other gods before me. This is one-on-one. You can't go, go around and worship other things, worship other gods. 
The problem is that over and over again, Israel broke their vows to God. And, and the prophets in the Old Testament described this relationally. It's, it, it was moral, but it wasn't just like, you're breaking all the rules that you're supposed to be following. It was, you've committed adultery against God. You've been unfaithful. You've turned away from Him. You've gone after other gods. You've broken your commitment, your covenant with Him. And they label it adul- as adultery. And eventually the people had strayed so far from their commitment to God that their covenant with him is, is null and void. They've just gone, God was always faithful, but they've just gone so far away that it's basically they're not even in the relationship anymore. And so God says, I'm going to send you away. I'm going to send you out of this land I've given to you, and it's called the exile. But there was hope because the prophets spoke of a day when God would return to his people and renew his covenant with them. And one of these passages is Isaiah 62, 5. God says, as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. And this this gets applied uh, to the church as well. But God's saying, I'm going to come back, I'm going to bring you back in a relationship with me, and I'm going to rejoice over you, my bride, just as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride. And then Jesus comes, announcing the good news of of the kingdom, saying, your God is coming back to you. And then he starts telling stories where He is the bridegroom in the story, putting himself in the position, in the role that God was going to serve. God says, I'm going to come back to you as a bridegroom. And then Jesus comes and starts saying, the kingdom of God is here. And they're like, why aren't you guys fasting? Why aren't you guys doing this? And Jesus is like, the the wedding guests don't fast when the bridegroom is with them. He's putting himself in the position that the people expected God to be in. And so Jesus is telling him, I am God returning to you as your bridegroom. And Jesus wasn't the only one to do this. Ephesians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul writes that Christ is the husband of the church. And as her husband, he has loved the church and given himself up for the church. And there's a purpose for it. He's loved her and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, but spot or wrinkle or any such thing. And so we don't present ourselves to Jesus. We don't clean ourselves up and say, Jesus, here I am, I've cleaned up my life. But it says he washes us so he can present us to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle. And so the only reason the church can wear a white dress at our wedding with Jesus is because Jesus has provided it for us through his death for our sins. Then when we turn to the book of Revelation, we see a picture of the future. Chapter 19 Jesus returns from heaven to bring home all those who trusted in him. And then we're told that all of heaven will cry out like this, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reign. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And all those people who've been ransomed by Jesus' blood from every tribe and tongue and nation and from all time will be there at this marriage supper of Jesus, the Lamb who died for our sins. In biblical times, there was uh, kind of two parts to uh, getting married. There's two major events. There's the betrothal, or we kind of call it, we call it engagement, and then there's the actual wedding. But when two people were betrothed, kind of like Mary and Joseph were, um, when they find out, when the angel comes and tells them that Mary is pregnant, um, with the baby by the Holy Spirit. They're betrothed, we're told. And then Joseph is kind of like, I'm just going to, he's thinking, I'm going to put her away quietly. She's pregnant. She cheated on me. And then he has an angel appear to him and says, No, marry her. 
her child is from God, uh, but they're betrothed, and you're already considered married, and, so, and you need to be faithful to one another. You're married, and you're, you're betrothed, and you're waiting for the wedding day um, when you'd have this party. The, uh, the groom would go to the bride's house, um, and then they would go and have this, bring her, and they'd have this party for seven days, and then afterwards, um, they'd go off alone and, and do what married people do to make the, the wedding, the, their marriage official and, and uh, consummated is what it's called. And so here in Revelation, we see Jesus returning to his bride, to his betrothed, who means already married, you know, technically married too, coming to bring her uh, to his house for the wedding feast. This was happening in Revelation 19. And this is a picture of all those who follow Jesus dressed in white because of their faith and now coming to this joyful celebration with her, with our uh, bridegroom who's loved us and given, us for, given himself for us and ransomed us, saved us, forgiven us, redeemed us. And so in light of this, it makes sense that Jesus often used the image of a party or a feast or a banquet to describe what the kingdom of God is like. Because when Jesus returns, he'll be the bridegroom throwing this huge party for celebrating his bride. And in the Old Testament, there are these sacred meals that were all, uh, that happened around when a covenant was formed, even the covenant between God and Israel, there's this meal that was celebrated um, in God's presence. And when you offer a sacrifice, the fellowship offering, most of the other sacrifices, it's just the offering just burned up. But in the fellowship offering, or the peace offering, you're, you're given a bunch of the meat back, and you're supposed to have kind of this barbecue celebration of like, my fellowship with God has been restored. I gave, and we're just celebrating what God has done. And they had these... Uh, there's three feasts that all males were supposed to travel to, and they last for this week. And so God sets up Israel as this nation that has all these feasts and parties and banquets, celebrating what God's done or looking forward to what God will do. And meals create and celebrate fellowship and relationship. And this is another reason that Jesus constantly used a party, feast, or banquet, banquet to describe the kingdom of God, because he saw himself as God coming back to his people in the flesh, and he's showing them what, what does it look like for God to come back. It looks like a party. It looks like a banquet. It looks like a feast. And so when Jesus hears his mother's request, basically ask him to fulfill the duties and responsibilities of the groom at this wedding party. He says to her, Mother, why are you involving me? My time has not yet come to be the groom, supplying wine to his wedding guests. I'm not the bridegroom of this feast, but I will be the bridegroom of the wedding feast of the Lamb. And John says his disciples saw his glory, meaning they saw a glimpse of who Jesus really is, and in seeing who Jesus really is, they're seeing who God really is, what God is really like, because Jesus came to perfectly reveal what God is like in a human being. And so when they're seeing what God, what Jesus is really like, they're seeing what God is really like. And in John 14, Jesus' disciple Philip says, Lord, show us the Father, meaning show us God, God the Father in heaven. And Jesus expresses disappointment, saying, Have I been with you so long, and you still not, do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How does this sign reveal Jesus' glory and thus cultivate belief in him? How does it reveal God? Jewish, Jewish people are waiting for their God to come back to them, to lead them out of captivity again. And it was going to be this big party. And Jesus is now saying, I am your God, come back to you as the bridegroom to free you from captivity. And the miracle of providing wine for this party 
is a sign and foretaste of that great celebration that Jesus wants to lead his people into. And so I want to ask you, or you can ask yourself, what is your view of God? And for many of us, I think God is kind of the adult chaperone at the high school dance. He stands by the wall, arms crossed, kind of slight scowl on his face, watching. And the adult chaperone at the dance, right, doesn't join in. Uh, they're making sure nothing gets out of hand, making sure uh, we don't do anything wrong or inappropriate. He's keeping us in line. He doesn't join in the fun, but making sure the fun doesn't go too far. And instead, we need to see God as the one actually throwing the party, of him being the most excited of all to be having this party. And there's nothing but joy in his face. And he's the one, maybe you're this person, or maybe you've experienced this, the person that is dancing and they see someone in their chair and they dance over to them and like grab their arm, pull them onto the dance floor. And I hate it when people do that. But anyway, that's kind of more of a picture of what God is like rather than being the person sitting back scowling. It's like God's the first one on the dance floor. He's the one wanting everyone else to come and enjoy the fun. And Zephaniah 3.17 says that God rejoices over his people with gladness and exalts over us with loud singing. And so God isn't the quiet one at the party. He's not sitting on the sidelines while everyone else is having fun. If there's somebody rowdy at the party, it's God because he's singing so loud and exalting so loudly. And it says, literally says, exalt over us with loud singing. And Jesus came announcing the kingdom of God. And how did the kingdom of heaven come to earth? How did Jesus push back the darkness uh, as the light of the world? How did he reveal God to us? By eating and drinking and hanging out, like going to parties and banquets and feasts. And Luke 15, we see Jesus says uh, three times, he shows that every time somebody repents and turns to God, there's this party in heaven, there's this rejoicing. And then he ends it with the famous story of the prodigal son to illustrate it, where uh, the son says, God, Dad, I want all my money, uh, all my inheritance. And he says, okay. And then he takes it, leaves, and spends it all on reckless living. And then one day he wakes up to comes to his senses and comes back to his dad and is going to say, Dad, can I just be a servant in your house? I don't deserve anything. Can I just be a servant? And dad hugs him and kisses him, throws his arms around him and says, you know, get the fatted calf. Tell the servants we're throwing a party now. And so it's this big party with the community, food, music, dancing. When the father's older son hears about it, he sits on the outside and he's scowling and judging them. He's really doing a lot of this stuff. doesn't participate. He's watching this party, and he's thinking, my dad never gave me a party like this. This son goes and wastes everything. And finally the dad comes out and is trying to convince him to come in, and he says, it is filling, fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this year brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And the father in the story is a picture of God. And we believe in a God who likes to party, a God who went to parties, and kept a party from ending disastrously. Disastrously, A God who went to parties so often, he was called a glutton and a drunkard as a way to kind of you know, push him down. Not that Jesus was a glutton or a drunkard, but you're just always eating and feasting and hanging out with people. Like you're, just, you're a glutton and a drunkard. There's just a way they could uh, kind of make fun of him or diss him. And we believe in a God who's planning the ultimate party, well, he will make the most impressive entrance ever. I mean, read about Jesus is coming back, planning this big party. This is a God of joy, a God who gives joy to his people and enjoys his people. And so, do you have a party pooper Jesus? Do you have a, a chaperone Jesus? 
Do you have a killjoy, sourpuss, wet blanket, grinch, grouch, scrooge, spoil, sport, Jesus? Maybe we'd expect Jesus to turn the wine into water so the party didn't get out of hand, rather than turning the water into wine so the party could keep going. Is your Jesus joyful? Does your Jesus have fun? Does your Jesus know how to have a good time? Does your Jesus laugh? Does your Jesus know how to party? Would your Jesus be the one out on the dance floor getting the party started? We need to turn from our grumpy, grinchy, chaperoned, party pooper image of Jesus and embrace the real Jesus because Jesus died to give us a VIP invitation to the greatest party that will happen in the history of the world. A party that will include people from every tribe, tongue, and nation and from all times, every time period. And we have this invitation. You know, it's kind of like the save the date on the fridge and we're looking forward to it, expecting it, preparing for it, saying one day, you know, we could easily be like, this world is so terrible. We don't put our hope, the party isn't in now. The party is then. We have a save the date for it. That this world, this is the party that Jesus is going to throw the party for us. And Jesus gave his life to make this party possible. And Jesus will literally be the life of that party, giving us eternal life in the Father, but also the one saying, let's celebrate. And we need to turn to the real Jesus, who is the planner of the best party in history, who uh, is the ultimate bridegroom, who throws the best party for his guests in celebration of his bride, the church. As we think about people in our lives, and for us, the image of a party taps into something deep within us. There's a longing and there's a desire. I think everyone likes a good party. And there's elements we could talk about what makes a good party. But there's parties tap into us, into our desire for joy and community and fun and celebration of being with people who are glad to be with us and we're glad to be with them. And just, it's almost like the cares of the world go away. I'm at this party and this is what I'm doing now. I'm not at work. I'm not doing this. But we're all coming together to have fun and celebrate something. And one way that we can show people in our lives what the kingdom of God is like is to throw good parties. Parties show people what God is like and they put the character and nature of our king on display. That he is joyful. uh, That he's singing over us with gladness. And so this is our Love Your Neighbor sermon series. And I passed around the neighbor map. um, this, This neighbor map that you each have. And I encourage you just to fill it out like where you are and then look at the houses, you know, across the street from you, directly next to you, and then behind you. And if that schematic doesn't work for you, just, I don't know, move the U or, or skip some. And it has these levels of kind of how much you know people up here. And it was really surprising when I filled this out because I felt like I, I know my neighbors well. And I started filling it out and I was like, oh, have something in common and mutual interest, um, a need or challenge they're facing. And I was kind of like, wow, I, I could go a lot deeper in knowing my neighbors. And what I want you to consider is how can you get to know, maybe it's not this configuration, but this has uh, eight boxes. How can you get to know the eight neighbors around you? And I want you to consider how can you bring your neighbors together for a party this year? Just one. Just throw one party. You don't even have to host it. You could be like, this person would be a better host. It's like, hey, we want to host, uh, we want to do like, a block party this summer. Or say, we want to have an ice cream social this summer. Or I've heard of some people doing like a happy hour, you know, wherever your stance is on alcohol. You don't want, you're not holding a party for people to get drunk, but it's like, this is going to be a happy hour. We're going to have, you know, these drinks available or bring your favorite drink or whatever. Um, or it doesn't even have to be alcohol. It can just be like having a soda bar or something like that. But uh, it could be a happy hour in your yard or something. And you could throw a kick off the summer party 
an end-of-summer party, a birthday party, a fall party, anything. And in the meantime, while you're thinking about that, you know, you might be thinking, it's kind of cold, and I don't want to huddle everyone in my house, I'm going to wait till it's warm. And that's why I'd encourage you to start reading this book um, and try to finish it before the summer, because that's going to help set you up. How can I think about my neighborhood differently and be thinking, what sort of party can I do this summer in my neighborhood? And in the meantime, we have a Super Bowl party next weekend, which is always fun to hang out as a church family, but we also welcome anybody to come. Invite anybody that you're thinking, I think they would like to watch the game and just invite them to come do this with you. And several years ago, we were doing cookouts every week. And one of the guys coming to those cookouts said something like, you guys know how to have fun without drinking alcohol. Because in the many parties, are you, you drink a little bit, that loosens you up, and then it's really fun. And he was always, he just thought it was remarkable. They're like, this is actually fun, and there's no drinking involved. There's no, you know, of anything else involved. And so often, I think people think that sin is what makes a party good. And if God doesn't allow sin, then he can't throw a good party. And the reality is that sin is what ruins parties. Sin is the real killjoy. Sin is the real party pooper. And God's parties are better because there is no sin. Christians ought to be known for throwing the best parties um, that are sin-free and yet are, are very fun. And that even makes it better. And we're all on a search for the ultimate party. And God himself is planning the biggest and the best party ever. And every party that we throw as Christians, a Super Bowl party or a neighborhood party of some sort, birthday party, whatever it is, is giving people a taste and a glimpse of that great party that will last into eternity, where, where Jesus gave his life so we can be part of that party. And Jesus is the life of that party. And every party we throw is just... Jesus is the life of that party. Why am I bringing these people together? Because I want them to know what God's kingdom is like. And God's kingdom brings people together to celebrate, to enjoy food, to enjoy God's creation, um, to just have, a, have fun together and talk and, and have fellowship. Every one of our parties is a reflection of God's great party. And every party we throw is just warming up for his. All of our parties are like pre-gaming for uh, God's party he's going to throw. And I think right now people need parties more than ever. Maybe you think, I don't know if right now is the best time. I don't know if right now we need a party more than ever because a bunch of people huddled together spreading their coronavirus. Maybe you're thinking, you know, that's not what people are needing right now. But wait for the summer when it's warmer out if you're feeling nervous about that and do it outside. And before the pandemic, people were already lonely and isolated. So how much more true is that right now? And I think most of our neighbors would feel like it's a great service to them if you were to plan a way for the neighborhood to come together and get to know each other, at least that's what we've experienced when we've thrown things. Um, where our current neighbors, they think they say we're a great addition to the neighborhood. It's kind of like, I don't know what I do. Well, we come out of things that they host, and we host things, and I think that builds a relationship. In our previous neighborhood, same thing was true. We did this ice cream social, and people just kind of said, thank you for doing this. I've thought about doing this for years, or I've wanted to get to know my neighbors. I've been here for six years, and I don't know them. And so people felt like this was a a service to them to have a party. And I want you to think about it like this. Parties are the front line of mission. Parties in your neighborhood, in your house, are the front line of mission. You know, this isn't the front line of mission. Where you live in your neighborhood is the front line. There's many things, times in the Bible, times when um, people are giving commands about how should you treat people 
around you. And if you look at the description of what it means to be a leader in the church in 1 Timothy 3, uh, uh, the Apostle Paul actually doesn't say, if you want to be a leader in the church, you need to go from house to house to house saying, you need to know Jesus, and I'm going to tell you about him now. But that's not in there. But what is in there is a leader must be hospitable, meaning they're welcoming people into their life, welcoming people into their home. They're, uh, they're loving their neighbors around them. And I always find that helpful that it's like, you know, I don't think Jesus is expecting me going door to door. Um, but he does want me to be hospitable, those people that are willing to come in and me being willing to go to them when they invite me to things. And so inviting people to the kingdom of God is inviting people to a party. And so throw parties. Go to parties that you're invited to. Invite people around your table. Jesus used meals and as, as an experiential taste of what the kingdom of God is like. And he talked about the kingdom like it was a party, like there was this banquet that you don't want to miss this. this is, you, you want to have this on your calendar. You, know, you don't want to miss this party. And evangelism, or you know, telling people the good news, is telling people about the best party and inviting them to it. Guess what? This party, you don't, have to, you don't have to be good enough to come to it. You don't have to be on some sort of uh, exclusive guest list. You just have to receive the invitation that you want Jesus to be the center of your life, the one who, uh, and then you get to be into this party. And so our sharing of the good news is telling people about the best party ever, about the best party thrower ever, inviting them to that. Let's pray. Father, you um, you are joyful. And you invite us to be to enter into your joy that you have and to experience the joy you have in us, that you actually enjoy us. You want to be with us. You have saved us that we uh, would be with you forever. And you're looking forward to that day when we get to see you face to face. So Lord, would you fill us with the the joy that we get to be part of the greatest party that will ever happen. Lord, would you let all of our parties be a good reflection of the party you invited us to. So then we pray. Amen.